All right, Daniel chapter 9, and we'll be reading the first few verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we are a desperate people. If you do not shine your face upon us, we are left desolate. If you do not give us your spirit to speak your truths, they're spoken without power. If you do not give us your spirit to hear your truth, we hear in vain. Father, may we do all these things for the uh, ultimate and end of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week... We observe the historical and biblical setting of this passage. We realize that when the scriptures tell us that this is the first year of Darius, it's dropping us back to the end of one chapter and the beginning of another, the end of the events of Daniel's life, the writing of the wall and then the destruction of the kingdom of Babylon and the development of the kingdom of Persia, uh, Belshazzar, and the writing that was on the wall. That finishes up for us, Daniel chapter 5. Many, many, Tekel Huparsin, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Belshazzar dies. Darius the Mede takes over. The next story we hear from Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. And Daniel has a habit of praying. He is almost certainly over 80, at least 80 years old. He's 80 to over 80 years old at the time of the lion's den event. So we are right here at the end of his life. He has been in captivity for many, many years. He has a lifestyle and a habit of praying three times a day. And so that when he's told in Daniel chapter 6 that he must pray to nobody else for 30 days other than Cyrus. Cyrus and Darius, the best of our knowledge, referring to the same person. It's definitely referring to the same time period, the king of Persia. Okay. 610 tells us this. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, the document stating that nobody could pray to anybody else, when Daniel knew that document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had his windows open toward Jerusalem. So that's significant, not because you have to pray towards Jerusalem, but remember, he's in exile God promised that if you did not keep his commandments, he would send you into exile, but then you would be returned. And so he prayed to his God in Babylonian exile to keep his eyes fixed upon the promise of the face and the presence of his God. And he goes to his window wide open and he prays three times a day, as was his habit. His reward, the lion's den. That's the 
historical and biblical context of Daniel chapter 9. We get to actually see what kind of things Daniel prays, what he was willing to pray publicly in order to stay faithful to his Lord. And so we're, we're using the language of James chapter 5 where it says the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. See the little King James's sneak in there? The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Fervently, consistently seeking the Lord. Daniel is such a righteous man in terms of all the men who have lived in, in time that God uses Daniel and says, even if Daniel prays for you, as righteous as he is, and as much of a prayer warrior as he is, even if he prays for you, he can only save himself. Like, that's the declaration of judgment that God gives his people. That's the kind of prayer life that Daniel has. And then we looked at what was marked by this prayer in Daniel chapter 6, that he was praying and giving thanks before his God. And we saw that thanksgiving is the mark of our prayer. We have to be praying in all things, spirit, prayers of thanksgiving to God, regardless of our life circumstances, for who he is and what he's done. And then that marks how we pray. All right. Now, though, now we're going to dig in to the details of the prayer. We're going to dig in the details of the prayer. And I have to tell you, it. this has become one of my favorite passages in the Bible, this prayer of Daniel. It is... <clears throat> It's so applicable, not only to our individual lives, but our corporate life of prayer. It has helped me personally better understand um, who our God is and what our God has done and how we're supposed to live in response to it. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been amazing. Right, so we're going to spend today looking at the foundation of fervent prayer. What is the foundation of a fervent prayer to God, consistently seeking his face. What kind of prayers does God want us to pray? Right. So Daniel 9, 2 says this. Daniel observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to <clears throat> Jeremiah the prophet. Right. So the first piece of this foundation is God's word. We pray fervent prayers from the Lord from the foundation of his Word. Now, there's an interesting truth that's mentioned here that's easy to skip, and we do not want to do that. Right. Notice in the text, it says, Daniel observed in the books, the article, the definitive art article, the books. So at this point in human history, they're not books as we visualize, but scrolls. So there was a scroll, and he's not just reading a collection of scrolls. It wasn't like, oh, Jeremiah, my buddy, he wrote this scroll. I'm going to take this with me into exile, and I'm going to add it to my scroll collection. No, no, he's reading from the scrolls. Do you understand that already what we see here is an example of what the church always does, which is to recognize the word of God? Jeremiah's writings were recognized as the authoritative word of God. It wasn't a scroll. It was the scroll. This is the middle of the 500s BC. We are reading 
when we read the book of Jeremiah, we are reading what Daniel read in exile as he was longing to be restored. How powerful is that? How amazing is that? How consistent is our God? Again, the fool will say that this is a modern thing. You know me and memes. I saw a meme the other day that says, wife to me. Would you please behave yourself at the family dinner? Sure, me at the family dinner with my atheist uncle. Uh, Constantine made up the Bible and just put it all together. <clears throat> me following up, no longer playing nice. You know, like the, 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 all these accusations. Well, Constantine made it up. Or that's been translated 100 times, 200 times. Just translated and translated. Man, did all this stuff. No, that's a fool. That's a fool. It's wicked. We're reading what was read as the authoritative word of God 25 years, 2,500 years ago. That's how amazing and powerful this is. Now, this is very important for our understanding of the distinction between us and Roman Catholics. And it's a very critical distinction that we need to understand because the Roman Catholics, as we know, will use our language and use biblical language, but then twist it and not mean the truth, but to mean wicked things. So... Here's what Rome will tell you about the Bible. The church gave us the scriptures. They're going to look back at councils, where the councils announced what was the Bible. They're going to look at the authority of the church, and they're going to look at those. It's the same passages that they get the authority of the Pope and what was given to Peter and all the stuff. They go, look, the church gave us the scriptures. They'll use that language. And we say, uh, no, 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 no. The church didn't give us the scriptures. The church recognized the scriptures. It's not done. This Bible is not the Bible. These 66 books of the Bible are not the 66 books of the Bible because the authority of some council, as wonderful as that council was. It's not the authority of some man-made religion. No, no, no. We recognize, as did Daniel, the word of God. And we have that responsibility. In, in the 200s, 24 of the 29, maybe even some say 25 of the, 20, of the 29 books of the New Testament were um, being recognized as scripture already. That's amazing. That's absolutely and unbelievably amazing. We recognize God's word. We do not declare it just like Jeremiah did. So, I'm sorry, just like Daniel did with the book of Jeremiah. So Daniel is here reading, and he's reading in Jeremiah. And he learns in Jeremiah that it will be 70 years to complete the desolations of Jerusalem. 70 years. So where was Daniel reading from? Well, if you'd like to turn there, Jeremiah chapter 25. The very text that Daniel read, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, here. Want to jump there real quick? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Jeremiah 25, starting at verse 12. What does the scripture say? Then 
it will be when 70 years are completed. Oh, there it is. 70 years are completed. I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. And on it goes. That's not the only place, though, that Daniel is reading. He's also reading from Jeremiah chapter 29, starting at verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and I will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Do you hear what Daniel's reading? He's been praying for, at this point in time, he's been in exile like 67, 66, 67 years. He's now an old man praying three times a day, looking at Jerusalem, knowing that God says, I will return you and I will bless you and you will pray to me and I will hear you. He's reading this. He knows. He knows the time is coming. I will tell you, the numbers and the dates do get a little weird when things are so old. It seems like the 70 years we're talking about is the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. And then when the second temple is built in 516, those are nice clean dates. They're historically verified, which isn't always the most important thing to us, but it is nice when that happens. It seems temple to temple. That seems to be how God emphasizes this story. 70 years. Cool. But here's what I find interesting. Daniel himself has been in exile for almost 70 years when he reads this. He had almost been in exile for 70 years because it started in 605. And so I want to just plant the seed for you for numbers that are going to be especially important. Jenny and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. That number 70 and anything connected to the number seven is especially important, right? Especially important. And when we see 70, God seems to mean some things that don't always necessarily match up to an exact measurable calendar. He's got holy purposes that it's up to us to prayerfully recognize so what exactly these dates and where daniel is and we don't know exactly how soon daniel thinks restoration is going to happen but here's the point he reads in the word of god that god is going to restore his people that babylon will be destroyed and what had just happened in daniel's life babylon was destroyed so daniel's like whoa something's happening this text is This text is coming together. And God says that when he destroys Babylon, he's going to return his people and they will pray and he will hear them. So he's praying with the confidence of the word of God. He's praying knowing that he reads in the word that this is the time. It is is the foundation of the word that moves us to pray. 
We understand how to pray. We read the text. We spend time in the text. It helps to change our mind. What I love this is when he sees all of this happening and he knows what God's going to do, he reads the word, and what does he do? He drops to his knees and he prays. He prays prayers of confession. Because what does the word of God teach us? The word of God teaches us about our God. So you don't know your sin because you don't know God. So the person who says, you mean I can sin my whole life and then pray at the end and go to heaven? No, you probably can't. Because if you actually think that's what's going on, you have no idea what you're talking about. All right. So whatever you think you know, you don't know. Because if you knew you needed to be saved, you wouldn't wait until the end of your life to be saved. Right? If you knew the God you were sinning against, you would not be boastfully blaspheming his, na- blaspheming his name right now. You would not be doing such a thing. If you knew God. Our, synth- our prayer life is weak because our view of God is weak. And our view of God is weak because we don't know him. And we don't know him because we don't spend time in his word. It is a big book. There is a lot. Finally, asked someone, I've read that whole thing and I know what the Bible says. Oh, you do? This young lady yesterday. That's fantastic. You read the whole Bible and you know what it says. Just help me out here then. The most, multiple times, multiple times. Here's the most, most popular verse in all of the Bible. Can you please tell me what John 3.16 says? Well, I didn't learn anything from it. She's read the whole Bible and she couldn't tell you what John 3.16 says. Right? Because she didn't read the whole Bible, clearly. And, and, and I can tell you as someone who has read the whole Bible many times, I do not know what the whole Bible says. And even if I knew what the whole Bible says, and I had the whole thing recited from Genesis to Revelation, that still wouldn't tell me enough about my God. There's more to know of him. The word teaches us about him, and therefore our prayer life is healthier because we know him. And the word, it's the foundation of fervent prayer. Why? Because you read and you see yourself. I've done that. I've seen myself in this prayer. Open shame be upon us, says Daniel. It's the collective. We. Open shame. Why did we get so fervent in our ministry to love the preborn neighbor in our town? Because it's our town. Open shame be upon us for being silent when babies are murdered. Open shame be upon us for celebrating wicked abomination in our <clears throat> town next Saturday. Or a flag on the side of the street. Open Shame. Well, why would we pray such a prayer? Why would we know to do such a thing? Well, I'm not celebrating LGBTQ pride. I don't need to pray that prayer of confession. Well, Daniel's not. <laughs> Daniel's not as guilty as his fellow Israelite in exile. And yet he, he uses the we. He knows. We learn from scripture how to pray. It's the foundation of our prayers. Not only that, though, it helps us. You know prayer is violent, right? Prayer is violent. I've been learning more and more now that I'm 45. I have some, I have wisdom that I didn't have at 44. And I've learned 
that I can be stubborn. Finally. I finally learned that that lesson. My flesh can be stubborn. Not can be, is. My flesh doesn't want to pray. There's a reason why when you sit down to pray and you're thinking about changing your oil or going to the grocery store or, you know, what you're going to eat for dinner or, man, what's going on there? Oh, that's interesting. Or or even the good things. Oh, I could do this with a tract. Or I, I want this for my next side. Oh, oh, we're going to go here. What are we doing this? I don't know. Hey, what's John doing? Oh, I wonder. Does he still? Hmm. And then all, then off you go. Why? Because your flesh doesn't want to pray. And I'm like, and, and this phrase that I learned, this this phrase from from brother Paul Washer, is pray until you do, and then keep praying until you did. Right? You got to pray and pray and pray until you can actually pray, because your body doesn't want to pray. And so you cling to God and you seek His face until you pray, and then you keep praying until you've done prayed. How long does that take? That's between you and God, right? Probably longer than three minutes. All right? That doesn't mean you don't pray for three minutes. I'm telling you, I'm to the point to where I'm, I'm fine with the Bible laying out some godly examples. And I'm, I'm really trying to set apart time three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening, to pray. And I want to be able to do it where I'm so consistent that even if I'm in public, that I'm going to spend some time in prayer. And it may not be able to be for long chunks of time. It may not always be around a meal. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But I want to I wanna pray to my Lord because we're in Babylon. And I need him. And I am so bad at just being still before him when I'm so worked up and so nervous. And the word of God exhorts me to be still before my God. That's why it's the foundation of our prayers. Not only that, though, it gives us a guide. I don't know if you recognized it, but very intentionally, I prayed through Psalm 19 in our corporate prayer today. You don't know what to pray? Grab a text and start praying. Read the verse. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Cool. Father God, may I please understand your law better. May I want to read your law. May it restore my soul. I know that I'm not going to like everything I read in your law. And may, may my friends and saints in the Lord love your law. And all of a sudden now you've prayed a minute or two. And what have you prayed? You've prayed scripture. And you've applied it to yourself and to the body. Or the wicked. It tells you some things to pray to the wicked. I've prayed now more consistently that God would remove our enemies. Why? Because I saw saw it in Scripture. It forms and structures our prayers. The first foundation of fervent biblical prayer is certainly the Word of God. But also, it's not just the Word of God. But it's the will of God. God's will is a foundation for our fervent prayer. Can I just say officially? If what you think was revealed to you by God specially to you is in the word of God, it's unnecessary. And if it's not in the word of God, it's not trustworthy. So the word of God is still Essential, right, for us understanding the will of God, because he tells us his will. But in 9.2, in Daniel 9.2, it says this. Revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 
years. And this part is kind of weird when you really think about it. He reads, the desolation will end in 70 years. And Daniel's immediate thing to go do is to go confess sins, remind himself of who God is, and ask God to save. Why does he need to do that? God already said he's going to save his people after 70 years. Why does he need to pray that God will save his people after 70 years? God's already going to do it. Or shall we change the topic a little bit? Why evangelize? Is not God going to save people? Yes. So why go share the gospel with them? Why go labor? If God's going to save them, he doesn't have to use you. You're right. How about politics? We know that leaders are in place by God, and he sets boundaries for them to function. We know that God will use them for his glory. He will use them for his purposes, that he steers, Proverbs tells us, the heart of a king, like a channel can can steer a river. We know he does that. So why pray that our politicians do things differently than they're doing? Is not God in control of it? Uh, If we're going to use biblical terms, this is why we need the wisdom of God. Things may seem foolish. Why pray to God? What are you going to do? Change them? Yes and no. No, we're not going to change God. But yes, he's actually going to use our prayers to do things. Why? Because for some reason, God wants us to participate in what he's doing in earth. I don't know why, other than it's according to his good pleasure. He wants us to pray for people when they're sick. Right? Pray for a brother in heart surgery with a heart problem. God bring God would be so gracious to bring him back to full restoration. We can say, He answered our prayers. If we don't pray and God brings him back to restoration, he's healthy still. But now what are we less likely to do? Praise our God for it, to give him thanks. And is that not what we're supposed to do? Yes, it is. We're supposed to give him thanks. But how about we just use the example of Christ? First of all, can we say, why would Christ even need to pray? (laughs) We, I mean, Christ knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. He has the power to do things. But he's walking perfectly into the submission of the will of the Father. What about the night he was betrayed? You remember his prayer in the garden? My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours. Can you just appreciate how weird that prayer sounds coming from Jesus Christ, who came to the earth for that very moment? That is absolutely why Christ came. And at the very end, Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. What do we see there? We see such submission to the plan and will of God. From the one, the only one, who could perfectly do the will of God. John, the Gospel of John, does one of the things that he does to prove that Jesus is God. As he proves that Jesus perfectly does the will of the Father. There's no one 
who's ever done it perfectly, no one who ever will do it perfectly because you must be God to perfectly do the will of God. And Christ was in perfect submission to the will of God because he's God. So he walked on earth. And so this prayer is for our behalf. Christ is so perfectly submitted to the will of God that all of his prayers come true and he's aligned so perfectly that he knows the weakness of the flesh because we don't have a God who can't sympathize with us. So when you and I pray to God, we pray to the Christ who was in the moment of doing exactly what he came to do. That he and the Father with the Spirit in eternity past, before anything was created, counseled together for this moment. The sovereign will of God decided before there was anything other than him to do this moment. And in this moment, he prays. He knows. He's our God. He's our good God. It's why we have Christ and we don't go through a Mary or a saint or a ritual. We go to Christ because he is the good God who teaches us that when you know the will of God, that's when you pray even more so that you can walk in accordance with his will. The will of God, now, does that make sense when Jesus says anything you pray in my name? I will do for you. That doesn't mean you say Jesus' name with anything. God, give me a Lamborghini in Jesus' name. God didn't give me a Lamborghini. He must not be real. Okay. Seriously, though, in other prayers, God, give me this. God, provide for me here. God, deliver me from this. And when it doesn't happen, people are like, who is this God? Because they put in Jesus' name at the end of it, and somehow they think that it's some kind of like special magic genie token phrase that that means that you're going to get whatever you want. That is not what that means. It means you're praying the fervent prayer of a righteous man which knows the will of God, that walks in the will of God, that wants to pray the will of God in Jesus' name because the Father loves the Son and the Son loves to do what God determines to do. And when we pray it, we walk in it. The will of God pushes us to pray. But even more so, when you see something coming, the, the end was coming. He saw it. The, the end of it all, God's will, God's sovereign will was going to get played out. And yet he still asked God to do what God promised to do. Ask God to do what he promises to do. We must do that. We must. Jesus says he's going to return. Jesus, please return. Jesus, please save your people. God, please judge the wicked. God, please comfort us. God, please fill us with your peace. God, please keep your promises. God, please never forsake me. You know that prayer because you hear the prayer. You, you hear the prayer, even though we are faithless, he is faithful. We read that in the words and then we know how to pray. God, please remain faithful to me. He is going to stay faithful. Of course he is. So it pushes us to do and to continue. So I 
find I find it very interesting though that just a little side note that we talk about the content of Daniel's prayer as it goes on. When I said that we gave the example of praying the content of the word of God in our prayers, Daniel prays the content of Leviticus. He prays the content of the law. Right, look what Leviticus 20, 22 says. You therefore to all you are therefore to keep all my command all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Leviticus 20. Verse 22 says, Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations and drive them out and all the things that I have aboard. Hence, you will possess the land and I will give it to a possession to you. I'm the Lord your God. I want you to be separate. He prays. The content of his prayer is, we have rejected your word. You have spewed us out. He's praying this. He recognizes the judgment on the land. Oh God, our nation hates you. We have neglected your ways. We have forgotten our God. Our end is Sheol. Please deliver us, not according to what we have done, but for your name's sake, for your glory, deliver us. That is content from the word of God that's applied to what we see. It's the word of God that defines for us our circumstances. We don't pray the headlines. We pray what the word of God says about the headlines. God's word lays it out for us. It helps us understand God's will. What is God doing? How is God acting? He's acting this way. Why is God acting this way? You have been faithful. Oh, the will of God said that this was going to, God's will was to spew his people out. God's will is to restore them. I know that. Now I need to pray. Now I need to pray. He's also praying Leviticus 26, which is the blessing of obedience and penalties of disobedience. He's just praying this stuff because he sees God's will at work. And so he goes back to the word to understand the will. And that's his foundation. So fervent prayer, God's word, God's will, and then God's character. And this is actually... um, one of my uh, favorite aspects of this passage. The foundation of fervent prayer is God's character. 9.3, Daniel 9.3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenants and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Shall we also not skip over the fact that when he knew he needed to pray, he fasted with sackcloth and ashes. There was a spirit of repentance that was granted him, and he waged war against the flesh so that he could pray. So, we cannot, must not ever separate who God is from what he's done. So, for example... God's redeemed me from the curse. He's redeemed us from the curse. Why? Because he's a redeeming God. He is the redeemer, and so therefore he redeems. 
God gives us his truth and allows us to understand truth. Why? Because he is true. And so when we pray to God, what we see here in this text is when we confess some truths about God, it helps us understand why our prayer is so powerful. And so what is what is confessed about God here? He is great and he is awesome. Our God is great and our God is awesome. We've got to be careful because words matter. And I actually think that there are words that are associated with God that our culture, because of our sinful rebellion, has gone out of our way to corrupt words that are applied to God. So, for example, great. Now, I grew up in the 80s. And there was a commercial about a cereal called Frosted Flakes. I still remember the commercial. They're great. You know, it's like, oh, oh, that's great. Yeah, the cereal is great. And then you read God is great. And you're like, yeah. No. No. The worst one, totally awesome. God is awesome. That wave was awesome. Right? Awesome. Woo! You see what we do? We just take these words that are important to understand God, and they've been just totally ripped of meaning and power. So just a couple moments to appreciate these incredible words. The Hebrew word, gadol, great and mighty. Gadol is the word, and it is used not for sugar cereal. It is used when God is in creation. He goes, oh, look at all these lights. Now I put two great lights in the sky, the sun and the moon. Right? The things, the thing that you can't even look at without burning your eyes. That's the great light that rules the day. It's, a, it's an emphasis of, of magnitude. Nineveh is a great city. Because it's huge and powerful, that great city. Abraham's children will become great among the nations. The best, the greatest. It's a, it's a word of comparison to emphasize the magnitude of what's being talked about. God delivered Egypt through great plagues. In fact, Exodus 18.11 states that now we know how much greater Yahweh is from all the other gods. His work of doing those great plagues was to show how great he was. And now everybody knows how much greater he is than all the gods. Now do we see how powerful that word is and how important it is. Now when you pray, oh great and mighty God, you are calling upon the God who is better than anything, more powerful than anything who is capable of doing anything that you ask, and Scripture would tell us, and abundantly more than you can even think. Why? Because he's so great. And then there's awesome. Yahweh. Not, I'm trying to emphasize. I have a problem with my R's. So it's not Yahweh. It's Yahweh. It's a completely different word. The Hebrew word for awesome. Here's how this word gets translated. Reverence. Fear, to be afraid, to revere, awe, dreadful, terrible. 
Dreadful is our God. Yes, for the wicked. Dreadful is our God for us in our sinful state. Woe is me, Isaiah says, when he's in the presence of the glorious God. He sees heaven peeled back by, you know, the scrolls peeled back. Whoa. Awesome God. He is awesome. Moses, when he spent time with God, coming down the mountain and coming out of the tent, his face glowed and he had to cover it because Israel was afraid of the fading glow of the face of Moses that he picked up getting like the shadow of God in the tent. I mean, that's how far removed Moses' face was from the glory of God and Israel was afraid of him. Anybody that says that they spoke to an angel and they didn't talk about immediately falling on their face in fear never encountered an angel of God. Right? That's what always happened. And they're just his servants. That's how powerful he is. He's an awesome God. So when Jesus in Mark chapter 8 says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to what he has done. That is a terrifying moment. Our God is an awesome God. Fear God. Fear this great God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the character of our God is he is great and he is awesome. And since he is great and mighty and magnificent and awe-inspiring and dreadful and fearful and powerful and all these things, he does great and awesome things. Like in our text, it says that he keeps his covenants. Daniel knows his covenants. God keeps the Noahic covenant. Aren't we thankful? Well, I mean, we kind of want to be in heaven, so we wouldn't mind God judging the earth, right? There's a part of that. But the spirit in us is thankful that God gave us the covenant, the Noahic covenant. He's God who keeps his covenants. He says, I'm not going to flood the earth for your wickedness. Oh, man, that, that fairgrounds, though, is really close to the river, God. Maybe just raise up the river, okay? Not a global flood, just kind of wash it clean. You know? I mean, my wife and I, we talk all the time. I mean, how much more wicked could we get? Like, was the world more wicked than this when God flooded it? I don't know. But then the way it covenant said he's not going to flood it again. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. He promised to bless Abraham's seed, that the nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed. And that seed was Christ, Galatians tells us. It's Christ. Whoa. God is a God of covenants. He keeps his own. In fact, he gave us a new covenant. This informs our prayer. He's an awesome God. He does awesome things. He keeps his covenant. Call upon those covenants. And then, so beautiful. And here's the, the word for us. Here's, here's where we wrap this up. Is that it's his loving kindness. His loving kindness, the text says. He keeps his covenant and his loving kindness. Let me just give you some places where this phrase comes up in our text. Genesis 19, 19. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. It's because of the loving kindness of God that you are saved. 
Exodus 15, 13. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. He's a redeeming God because of his loving kindness. Exodus 20. How interesting. A part of the Ten Commandments mixed into there, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. I love it. This is the Lord confessing about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Why is God slow to anger? Because he's abounding in loving kindness. Exodus 34, 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands? Who forgives Iniquity. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Oh, remember, O oh Lord, compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. The character of God is the foundation of our fervent prayer because he is a God who keeps his covenants and he's a God filled with loving kindness. And because he is those things, he is quick to forgive and we can call on him. The word of God, the will of God and the character of God needs to form the foundation of our prayer life. And so if you're lacking anything in your prayer life, kind of a question you don't have to answer because the answer is assumed. If you're lacking anything in your prayer life, do the combo. Spend more time in the word, and while you're in the word, pray. Stop and pray, stop and pray. And if you're like, ah, but my Bible reading's kind of weird, then just start in the Psalms, which is singing prayers to the Lord, and read through those. And then read a New Testament book. I, I give thanks to my God always, Paul says, for, and then he goes on and tells you what he gives thanks for. And so read that and give thanks for those things. Seek the Lord first foundation. The, the foundation of fervent prayer is the word, will, and character of our God. We thank you, Father, that you are awesome and great and keeping covenants and filled with loving kindness. And we ask, Father, that uh, you actually would do what you said happens when we gather to uh, take up the Lord's Supper is that we will be proclaiming the death of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes. And we pray, Father, that your spirit, through examining us and reminding us that you keep your promises, thank you for the new covenant, and may all of this be done to strengthen and encourage um, your body today. In Jesus' name, amen.